0: Greetings, this is a Travel Addict Podcast where you can hear candid stories and discussions about business and travel from around the world. From the tame to the extreme, from the boring to the exciting, from the common to the rare, from the hometown to far-off distant places. We've got it. Incidences abound with times of misinterpretation, foreign culture adjustments and suspect judgment calls, all with good intentions, of course. With activities such as trekking, diving, camping, avoiding trouble, and other dodgy behaviors, there is always a story to tell. Places we talk about include the grand, the remote, the edgy, the risque, and ones of questionable merit. For additional information, folks, go to the website malcolmjteasdale.com. Stay tuned, everyone. Having been to so many off-the-beaten-track places during my life, it was time to take things to the next level. The question I asked myself was, where could I go that did not include climbing a mountain, trekking across deserts? Flying to a remote island or being too hot or too cold. Of course, it had to be somewhere that was appealing and safe. Not much to ask, is it? I eventually whittled it down to the vast country of Mongolia that has a population of only about 3 million, half of which live in the capital city of Ulaanbaatar. And that's spelled different ways, by the way. So I did my research on Mongolia. I like this quote from a gentleman by the name of Fritz Mullenweg, who says, The poor foreigner has been acquainted with our grasslands, but for four short days. We must pity him. How hard it must be not to be born a Mongolian. To be sure, the fellow is most unfortunate, but how blessed he is to have found his way to us. Extraordinary statement, that is. As usual, I did not make it easy on myself by planning a route there. I was initially in northern Thailand uh, at a city called Udon Thani, U-D-O-N space T-H-A-N-I. It was a one-hour flight to Bangkok, and one of the best travel companions I have is a priority pass card, which allows me to access airport lounges around the world. Beverages, food, Wi-Fi, and comfortable chairs are always available. Every little bit of comfort helps along the way, especially at my age. After a three-hour layover, I took an Air China flight that left at 7.35 p.m. Beijing. It arrived at 1.30 in the morning. And then the confusion began. Now, most travelers who arrive in Beijing stay there, but I was an international transit passenger who had a connecting flight several hours later actually at 8.30 a.m. My intent was to check in at an hourly hotel and try and sleep for a few hours. Now, Beijing Airport is large and modern, and although directions are written in both Chinese and English, or should I say Chinglish, it is still difficult to navigate. My arrival and departure terminals were different, which during the day is no problem, as you can just follow the crowds. However, at 1.30am in the morning, it's a little different with only a handful of passengers whose intention it is to just pass through the airport and little chance that they're on their way to Mongolia. Once I arrived at the main terminal there, there were a few checkpoints with security staff who looked like they may have been taking a nap before I turned up. Signage was plentiful, but not for international passengers or transit passengers, I should say. However, after backtracking a few times, I finally made it through to the correct terminal for my next flight. It was still six hours from departure, so I checked in at a transit lounge where the couches were full of sleeping passengers who did not want to pay the $12 per hour to rent a room. I wanted a room and a shower, as it would already begin for a long day for me. I needed darkness to help me sleep, which... I did for about three hours before taking a hot shower that would wake me up, enough to get to the departure gate in plenty of time for the Air China flight to Ulaanbaatar. Now, Chinggis Khan Airport is quite modern and understandably not too large. There are not many flights arriving and departing during the day, so it was an easy process to pass through immigration, even though I was at the back of the line. Now, finding a taxi was easy enough uh, because I arrived in the morning during the week. The traffic was quite bad in the city. Now, the journey took almost 45 minutes. Leaving the airport was a bit of a bottleneck. But when we arrived at the outskirts of the city, things just grinded to a halt. Well, almost. As we entered the city, there was a row of metal camel statues, sort of unusual, it wasn't too long after that, we pulled into the front parking lot at the Springs Hotel. I chose this hotel because it was in the city center and was a reasonable price compared to the cost prohibitive Shangri La Hotel, which was a block away. Accommodation in Ulaanbaatar is quite expensive, surprisingly. Yeah, I don't know why. Maybe it's because the city is not overloaded with hotels, especially in the center, i.e., not much competition. My plan was to check in for only one night as I was taking a tour the following day, but then check back in after my tour for another two nights. Not far from the hotel was a great Khan Irish pub. Why am I not surprised, you may ask? Well, there's an Irish pub virtually in every city on planet Earth. Maybe aside from Lhasa, Tibet. It did not take any research to locate Juan because it was very well advertised as a good eating place in the city. Fortunately, it was within comfortable walking distance of the hotel. Even though it was the end of May, the temperature in the evening had dropped significantly from what it was sure the day. It was too cold for shorts. Well, it must have been about 7pm when I left the hotel that evening with a map in my hand to ensure I walked down the correct streets on the way. What I did not expect Was a traffic problem. Understanding that the city has a modest population of one and a half million, I was surprised at the congestion. Traffic was barely moving along one of the main streets, which made me think there must be an accident along the way. As I approached the traffic lights at a major intersection, they seemed to be working just fine. However, there were about four or five policemen administering traffic flow. I watched this for a while and it became clear that traffic lights did not make much of a difference to the vehicles on the road. In my short time watching this action, I saw a number of vehicles attempt to cross the intersection when the lights were red. And when a hand motion to stop from the policeman was clearly displayed, I watched the policeman become irritated when these drivers decided to ignore them and the lights. The busy hours for traffic is between 4 p.m. and 9 p.m daily, which is difficult to comprehend because it is a long period of time, even for a large city. Anyway, that night I spent at least two hours down at the Great Carn Irish pub before I walked back to the hotel, and even the traffic was still snarled at that time of night. Outside of these hours, another major intersections, which were not really major by Western standards, When there were no policemen on duty, many vehicles just ignored the traffic lights, which caused drivers to sound their horns in frustration and anger. It was quite funny to witness, actually. Although I was a little wary of crossing the streets, as it was quite evident, some drivers set their own rules about giving way to pedestrians and other vehicles. However, the traffic was moving slowly, so slowly that even when I crossed the road, it was highly unlikely that I would suffer any injury when I came into contact with a car. At the Great Carn Pub, which is impressive both on the outside and inside, service was just great. I drank a pint of Chinggis draft beer, which was very good, plus a Caesar salad and a small steak. I knew I would be back, but after my meal, I knew it was time for bed as there was a long day ahead for me. I did not unpack my suitcase, but only transferred some clothes and toiletries into my backpack, for an overnight stay. My backpack is one I purchased in the city of Kathmandu, Nepal, a few years ago before embarking on a two-day trek in the Himalayas. It was one of the best investments I have made because I've used it many times without something breaking on it. Basically, before I went to bed that first night, I prepared to check out the next morning. The hotel breakfast in the morning was basic, mainly catering for Asians, but it seems that whatever... I go, there are always eggs and bread, and in most cases, a toaster. In addition to that, with three cups of tea, I was ready for the day ahead. I left my luggage with the hotel reception, although my passport, credit cards, and cash came with me in a secure pocket inside my backpack. The hotel staff seemed genuine and sincere, but after spending less than a day in the city or country, I could not consider myself an expert on its people's honesty. I arrived in the lobby where there were three people waiting for me a lady named Chimji and two other gentlemen named Eric and Paul. Paul was my tour guide and Eric was the all important driver. Chimji was the tour agent at the tour group, the one I've been communicating with leading up to this trip. She just came along for the introductions and soon after we were on our way to somewhere in the spacious Toyota SUV. Now, one of the observations is about of all cars on the road were Toyota. Most of the remaining 10% were either Honda or Nissan. I saw one Ford motor vehicle for the entirety of my stay, which was the only American car that I noticed uh, during that period of time. I asked the question why. Apparently, it's the reliability of the vehicles that are better equipped to endure the harsh winters and the rugged terrain. Well, I couldn't argue with that. They warned me about the city's traffic and that it would take about 45 minutes to get to the outskirts. No surprise to me there. Further behind we left Ulaanbaatar, the less inhabited and the more scenic the landscape became. Not far outside of the city was what looked like a couple of factories, somewhat isolated. One of them was a meat processing plant and the other was a large distribution centre. Close by? We pulled over and picked up some water from a grocery store. The climate was arid, so water was a necessity as we headed out far away from the city. An hour later, we pulled over to the side of the road. I was thinking to myself, this could be very interesting, as I saw a couple of nomads with three large birds of prey. I knew that in the wilds of the Mongolian wilderness that nomads have a special relationship with these birds, especially the eagle, who is domesticated to a degree. The nomad hand-feeds them and reaps the benefits of the birds that hunt and kill small animals for food for their masters. Even foxes and wolves are targets, which one would think might be able to fend off a bird or two But having come up close and personal to the nomads' best friends, I understand why not. Additionally, the skins are used for warmth during the harsh winter months. That is from the animals that birds of prey capture. Sort of a win-win situation of sorts. It was video and photo time. One of the nomads put a protective leather cover on my right arm, then put the largest bird of the three of them on top. It was a vulture. I named him Victor. I'm not sure if he had another name, but Victor just seemed appropriate, or some sort of reason I chose that name. I don't know why. V, I guess, was in the name. He flapped his wings to keep his balance on my arm, which spanned about eight feet. Now, Victor and I made contact with his large beak about six inches away from my face. He probably could have killed me right there, but he was quite accepting of this stranger who had the audacity to hold him and talk to him. Paul took a video of this event with my GoPro camera, which I later posted it to YouTube, and it's now available for viewing by the general public. After about five minutes, it was time for bird number two. After a minute or two rest, Victor must have weighed about 30 pounds. Now, there were two eagles there, a white one and a golden eagle. The white ones are a little larger than the golden ones, and both of them were smaller than the vulture. I named the white eagle Ernie, and then the nomad placed him on my arm. Another large set of wings. Of course, he flapped them to show them off to me. He was confident, although likely thinking about the fact he had yet another tourist to entertain. Another video was made. For the golden eagle, I stood next to him for a photo shoot. Another wonderful animal it was too. It's a pity they can't talk. But being such intimidating animals, they probably have no interest in the slightest about learning the language of human beings. If we had time, I would have loved to have been with the nomads as he let them fly into the wilderness doing what they do best, hunting for something edible. We left the area and headed further into the wild landscape until we reached the Turelge National Park. An entrance fee was paid by Paul and we entered into an area that had less people and fewer buildings. The paved roads became dirt roads, and the scenery became more dramatic, mountainous landscapes, and a lot of nothingness. Occasionally, there was a herd of cattle just roaming freely. According to Paul, they knew where they were at at any moment in time and where they were going, as it was a daily routine for them. We reached our destination, a jur camp. Ger spelled G E R, sometimes called a yurt. A ger is a structure that nomads call home. It's basically a tent built on a wooden circular frame with a felt cover and additional canvas for support and protection. The structure is kept together by the weight of the covers, and with the help of an attached heavy lead ball hung from the center to keep them firmly in place. A skilled crew can assemble a basic ger in about two hours, and there is plenty of space, as you can imagine, in Mongolia to choose an area in which to live. My ger for the night contained two single beds and a wood burn in the center for heat. Because uh, there was no room for a shower or a toilet, I had to walk about—I uh, would say about a hundred yards—to the communal bathroom for the necessities. A little inconvenient, but it was only for one night. We had a decent lunch at the Jura Camp's restaurant that consisted of soup and some meat, which I assume was chicken. Hot tea was also available. Now, all jurs are constructed facing south. This is so the nomads can tell what time of day it is. The jur Top is open during the day to let in the sunlight and based on the position of the shadows, they can tell what time it is. They face south because Mongolia is in the northern hemisphere and therefore is exposed to sunlight throughout the day. I'm not sure what happens in winter during reduced daylight hours and during the evening hours, but the fact that these nomads have been living like this for centuries, one has to assume that they've figured it all out. After lunch, we headed for a unique experience. I knew ahead of time that we were going to spend an afternoon with a nomadic family. Not long after I arrived in the country, I walked to the local supermarket and bought some food items including Earl Grey tea, some cookies and snacks with the intention of giving it to them in appreciation for their hospitality. The nomad family consisted of the husband and wife with a couple of their young children. They also had some yaks and horses to take care of, on their land of about an acre, although the animals spend their leisurely time grazing wherever they want. Now one of the young children, probably about four or five years old, was completely naked, just running around and acting like a kid. As is custom when meeting nomadic people at their residence, they share their snuff bottles, which are called kurogs. The nomads offered a bottle in their right hand as if they were extending it to shake hands. I received the bottle and partially opened the top and took a whiff of the stuff inside. I then sprinkled some on the side of my fist and sniffed it into my nose. It had a slight pleasant odour, but did not generate any feeling of euphoria or dislike. The snuff bottle is made from rare jewels such as agate, chalcedony, Carol and Jade some ingredients there that I am not familiar with out of the listed ones I'd only come across Jade before the snuff bottle was passed around everyone in the room except the kids the man at the house did not speak English so I communicated with him via Paul now from a materialistic standpoint it's obvious they were poor but it doesn't matter to them they live where they do because they want to Much of the reason is due to their ancestors who lived that way, so they feel compelled to do the same thing. I asked the man of the house whether he would consider moving to the city of Ulaanbaatar. His reply was a forthright, no. Yogurt, made out of yak's milk and bread, was served to us. Although wary of food poisoning or a stomach upset, I decided to eat what they offered as a sign of respect. Then it was just fine. We had a good conversation during my time with them about how they conduct their lives day to day. It's not all about living off the land for them. There was a grocery store fairly close by where they could purchase basic food supplies and water. If there was any medical situation, there were doctors reasonably close by to administer help. As for hospitals, I did not see any, although I was told that there were clinics in the area for more serious cases. The time approached when... The cattle started to find their way home after a day of heavy grazing. How they knew this, I just don't know. But as we went outside, a group of cattle were making their way back to their respective homes. The youngster of the house was outside in the ranch area shouting at a particular cow. The cow listened and entered through the gate onto a property. It had a specific enclosure to enter, but pie passed it until the young child guided it into the area where it was supposed to spend the rest of the day. The child tried to close the gate, but it was too heavy, so Dad rushed over to help finish the job. I took a video of that episode and his posted on YouTube. It still makes me laugh today, actually. It was time to leave. We shook hands, and we were on our way back to the jerk camp for the remainder of the afternoon. Now, as Mongolia is quite northerly in Asia, and it was the end of May, sunset was about to happen at 8.30. The weather was not too hot or humid, maybe in the seventies, but it was ideal for trekking. Behind the geocamp, the terrain was somewhere between hilly and mountainous. I felt the need to climb, so I dragged Paul along and we started to walk up the steep incline for a better view of the landscape. Apart from sliding down the side of a large rock and cutting my knee, the climb was well worth it. The view was fantastic, although wherever I pointed my camera, The resorting picture did not do justice to what I was actually looking at. It reminded me of taking a photo of the Grand Canyon in that whatever was in the field of view of the camera was virtually insignificant to what I could see with my own eyes. The Mongolian landscape is unique in that it displays very little in colour, but only different shades of green and brown in the form of clumps of trees, fields and untouched land. It displays isolation, images of a land that has not been explored by a man. It could have been masked, or at least you could tell that someone, and they might believe you if you showed them a picture. We managed to reach a point where carrying on was unnecessary and unwise. Two factors determined this, the chance of getting lost and sunset approaching. We would not be able to descend in darkness because it was too hazardous. The moon was only partially visible to generate any adequate light for us, and there was no lights from the Jura Camp below. Now, the Jura Camp did have water and electricity, although the former you could not drink from the tap, only from bottles. Electricity was fed into the premises from overhead cables attached to poles that seemed to stretch to miles away. Actually, there was a power station, but it was out of sight, in a valley somewhere close by, I was told. We made it back without further injury. I should have known better than to wear tennis shoes without any decent tread. I treated my body to a lengthy shower. It needed it. The communal bathrooms were in a single building but separated from men and women. Next door was a building where local staff worked that were responsible for cleaning the bathrooms and the jurors. I have to admit, they did a pretty good job as there was someone on the hand at all times to make sure everything stayed clean and hygienic. We met at 8pm for dinner which turned out to be rather delicious. A small kebab appetizer followed by a salad and a steak was enough food for the night. It was in fact beef as opposed to yak meat. Anyway, I was in bed by 9.30pm. Since my jur had two single beds, I used the sheets and pillow from both of them to keep me warm throughout the night did get rather cold during those nine hours, but I managed to get a decent night's sleep. Now, you may be reading this or wondering if I had to use the bathroom in the middle of the night. Well, actually, I did. There was a pretty decent breakfast buffet in the morning, consisting of yoghurt, cereals and eggs. The sausage meat was poor, but it didn't matter as long as I had my three cups of tea to put me in an active mood. I said goodbye to my jur and off we went to the SUV, to our next destination, it was time to learn a little bit more about Genghis Khan. Part of the Genghis Khan statue complex, there is a 139-foot statue of the man himself on horseback. It is made from stainless steel, so it can tolerate the harsh winter weather. The statue itself is accessible, so we climb up various staircases through the horse's chest and neck into his head. Yes, his head. From there, we enjoy the same view as the horse did, a panoramic view of the landscape. The museum below has exhibitions relating to the Bronze Age and various Mongolian cultures, which display everyday utensils and models of sacred animals. There is also an additional exhibition about the Great Khan period during the 13th and 14th centuries, which show tools, armour, weapons, etc., the location of the complex itself seemed like someone threw a dart at a map and said, let's build it here. Although legend has it that the great Khan himself found a golden whip at this exact location and said, start building. There was a souvenir shop on the premises, but poor told me better prices are available in the city of Ulaanbaatar. So I saved my money until that time. Now, we were driving down the dirt road when Eric pulled off to the side. In front of us was turtle rock, basically a large lump of granite that, if you looked at it for a few seconds, actually looked like a turtle. It's amazing what the wind can do to stone over centuries. It's a photo opportunity because it is impossible to climb. Even if it was possible with the combination of my inadequate tennis shoes and my clumsiness, it could have ended badly. A few miles away and along some very dusty and bumpy roads, we pulled into a car park. By this time, we were basically in the middle of nowhere. Paul pointed to a building on the hillside, which looked like quite a hike from where we were. Ariyavill Monastery and Meditation Centre is where we were heading to, however, on foot. We couldn't take the vehicle any further anyway. Paul and I started our trek. Eric had the good excuse that he had to look after the car. I get it. It was a strenuous walk, and after stopping a few times to catch our breath, we made it to a large prayer wheel above which was a clock hand to spin. The perimeter was divided into many sections that were numbered, each representing some words of wisdom displayed on one of the notification boards leading up to the monastery. The hand of the wheel stopped on number 115 for me. In Buddhist religion, When you walk around something that is sacred, you must do it in a clockwise direction. The same principle applies to spinning the clock and round the dial. As we were appointed our number of wisdom, we then walked clockwise around the prayer wheel after spinning the large metal cylinders that were inscribed with more words of wisdom. It was still a long walk uphill to the monastery, but we were in no hurry. That's important when trekking anywhere. Just walk slowly and you'll get there eventually. We stopped along the way to read some of the scriptures, some of which had very deep meanings that were just too complicated to understand. Eventually, my number came up and the notice board said this. The Buddha further spoke, Maitreya, you have correctly practiced the perfection of 60 aeons, the perfection of ethics for 60 aeons, the perfection of patience for 60 aeons the perfection of enthusiastic perseverance for 60 aeons. To this, the foolish respond. There is only one way to attain Buddhahood, and that is the way of emptiness. Their practice is completely mistaken. Yeah, it was quite interesting. Anyway, word of note here, Amitraya is regarded as a future Buddha. Still huffing and puffing a little from our walk to get to this point, These words were not easy to understand at that moment in time, especially the part where the foolish said their peace and the Buddha responded. We proceeded upward. Prior to the final hundred steps to the monastery, there was an old rickety swinging bridge to navigate. It seemed solid, but I may have had second thought if it had been a windy day. There was a sign by the bridge that read, The bridge that leads beyond wisdom. How cool is that? Adrenaline took over and we handled the bridge and final 100 steps without stopping. At the top, we turned around and enjoyed the stunning view of the Mongolian wilderness. Inside the small temple were two long benches reserved for the monks. We walked around the perimeter in a clockwise direction, of course, and admired the colours, the statues, the artwork, and the peacefulness of it all. On the floor is inscribed a gallery of Buddhist philosophy. I sat in there for quite some time because I enjoyed the solitude and quietness of it all. Outside, we met the monastery's caretaker. He had been taking care of it since 1980. Talk about job security. He lived on a small ranch at the bottom of the hill, not far from where our car was parked. Food and all his supplies were transported in wherever he needed them. I'm not sure whether he was by himself or not. But living in such an isolated location for all of these years takes strength and a lot of willpower. There were more words of wisdom on notice, pause, as we headed back to the car. I stopped and read a couple of them, and this one got my attention. It said avoid taking these three types of wives those whose natures are to associate with your enemies like assassins, to be contemptuous of their husbands like baronesses, or to rob and steal even little things, like thieves. (laughs) Anyway, I remember thinking about the person who wrote these words. Were they scorned individuals or just paranoid? I wonder. Anyway, all signs were written in Mongolian and English. Mongolia uses Russian characters for the alphabet, but the language of Russia and Mongolia are quite different. They do not understand each other's language, much like English. French, Spanish, but they all use the same characters basically for the languages. Time had come to head back to Ulaanbaatar. It would take a few hours, with a large part of the time consumed by dealing with the city's traffic. I wasn't driving, of course, so I could just sit back and relax, think about the last two days of great experience. As we entered the city limits, I could have walked the last half mile back to the hotel, but decided to hang on until the end so I could tip my tour guides for a job well done. At the hotel. Paul gave me a report card to complete, which I later threw away, but just sent a nice complimentary email to their company's office. The hotel had a massage parlor in the basement called Ubi Massage. Massage. I can't imagine where they got that name from. I spent an hour there having a hot oil body massage, which is very relaxing, although I had to have a shower afterwards to rid my body of the greasy-like liquid they used. In fact, it was that good. I went back the next day for another session. My favourite pub in town beckoned me. I sat there in the same chair as I did the other night. I googled Indian restaurants near me. I found a couple which had some pretty good reviews. I located it and mapped it out on my iPhone and it appeared to be fairly close to where I was. I was excited to find my favourite food nearby. After completing my Chinggis beer, I was on my way. My excitement didn't last too long. As I couldn't find it, I must have walked a couple of miles around the neighbourhood, but still no luck. I had to throw in the towel eventually on that idea and return to the pub, which in itself was a decent plan B. Another Chinggis beer and some Mexican food was well, a good way to end the day. Strange, isn't it? Mexican food, in an Irish pub in Mongolia. Who else can say they experienced that combination? I think the reason the Great Car Pub is popular is because of the food and the vibe. It's just a nice place to hang out. I was sitting there, minding my own business, and an Austrian man from Innsbruck came to chat with me, a little inebriated, but he was quite friendly and proceeded to tell me about his likeness for the country. He said he was there on a business trip, but I did not ask details in case it started him off on an extended explanation, which after a long day in the peaceful countryside was the last thing I wanted to hear about. Then he started to talk about the Mongolian women. And how attractive they were. Up until that moment I hadn't really taken much notice, but he was right in that regard. As I looked at my surroundings and noticed a distinctive Asian look with sharp facial features. They neither looked Japanese, Chinese, or from any other Asian country that I was familiar with. He further mentioned that as women are attractive, the men get are very protective of their treasures. And do not particularly like strangers from Western countries encroaching on their territory. I have no idea if that statement is true or not, but from my brief time in the country, I found everyone to be friendly and helpful. Maybe the local men just become a little feisty after drinking too many Mongolian vodkas, which I understand to be very good and superior to what Russia has to offer. Now, Mongolian vodka is also a major export, as it is from the likes of Russia, France, and Scandinavia. Now, I finished my food and paid the bill, cash, just to get rid of some of the Mongolian currency of Tugrit that filled my pockets. At the time of my visit, one US dollar was worth 2,500 Tugrit. Two I left the pub at about 10pm for the 10 minute walk back to the hotel. The traffic had died down a little, but it was still far from free flowing. Even though I stood out from the crowd as a clear foreigner, I felt perfectly safe. Apart from myself, On the street at a fairly late hour, there were plenty of other people doing the same thing, both young and old. I read government reports about the city's decent safety record, even though sometimes these reports tend to exaggerate. There are pickpockets, but they are present the world over. I assume the punishment for stepping out of line in the country is not too pleasant. I envisioned a cold prison cell in the winter months with only a cup of yaks milk each day. There's one day left of my visit to Mongolia, and it was to be a relaxing one, just walking around the city centre and souvenir hunting. Actually, it was perfect timing, as it was a public holiday in the country. It was called Mother and Children Day. I did not ask the receptionist too much about it when she mentioned it on my return to the hotel, but I rather just wanted to experience it firsthand without prior knowledge of what to expect. Now, the long day and the few beers I consumed both played a part in helping me sleep very well that night. I attended breakfast just 15 minutes before it closed. As I was in no hurry, to do anything apart from making sure I had morning tea. The only bad news about the tea is that they only had Lipton's, which is one step above hot water on the flavour scale, in my opinion. However, beggars can't be choosers. It was close to noon when I left the hotel for a stroll around the neighbourhood. My first indication of Mother and Children Day was quickly realised when I saw families walking along the main street out of my hotel towards the Parliament building. The children were dressed very smartly, whereas cartoon characters, the mothers were dressed in fashionable outfits, while the dads were just dressed however they wanted to be, but none of them looked like low-class citizens. By the time I reached the square in front of the Parliament building, the so celebrations were in full flow. It was obviously a major event, well planned and implemented. There was various activities taking place, including dancing, music, lots of clothing stores in a market format, paintings of faces and balloons everywhere. It was a happy occasion, and it rubbed off on me. I was happy just to be an onlooker and taking pleasure in watching everyone have a great time. Poor Tommy is something from the day before, that a strong family means everything in Mongolia. Whether it is a nomadic family from the wilderness or a family that lives in the city where the parents work daily jobs, what I saw was one very large happy family. Then I wondered what they knew about the troubles elsewhere in the world, or whether they were even bothered about it. Not that it mattered any, as at that moment in time they were just more than happy to be in Mongolia. Even the traffic congestion took a break. On a large stage in front of the Parliament building, traditional Mongolian dances were taking place, although played to recorded music. Musicians did take the stage at times to play old traditional Mongolian instruments, some of which only had two or three strings. In fact, the national instrument of Mongolia is a Morin Kur, which has two strings with the body and neck carved out of wood. It sort of begs the question, just how many different notes can you squeeze out of two strings? Various wind instruments and items you can just hit were also part of the ensemble. It all sounded good to me, just added to the joyful atmosphere. I found a couple of souvenir shops, although most of the items were either too large or breakable. However, I did find a couple items and some t-shirts. One souvenir was a small model of a jure about four inches in diameter. It now sits on a shelf in my souvenir cabinet in my office. Car parking in the city is at a premium, so it's fortunate that there is a decent public transport system. Maybe the traffic congestion is partially due to everyone trying to find a parking space somewhere. On this particular day, because of it being a public holiday, the traffic volumes were slightly less, but the number of people on the street had increased substantially. This meant that the police could not enjoy a day off, as they still had to control the traffic to let people cross the road. The congestion in Ulaanbaatar reminded me of somewhat of Hanoi, Vietnam, where there is an even mix of cars and scooters. No one stops for pedestrians, so you just have to step out in the road and walk across the drive as expected. And will avoid you. But if you change your mind and turn around, or even stop, they cannot predict that, so it puts you at risk. I just crossed the road a few times in the city, and the vehicles stopped as if they weren't stopped already. Now, pollution is a problem in the city. So after spending a few hours walking around, I felt like I needed a shower to clean up. However, I decided to make a short walk down the street to the luxury Shangri La Hotel, easily the best accommodation in Tam, attached to the shopping mall. As far as moles go, it was no different to what we have at home, including familiar name stores. Children's activities were in abundance, and so were the fancy dress costumes. I stopped in at the upscale lobby bar for a cup of Earl Grey tea, which just seemed appropriate. I did consider staying there, but a price tag of more than $300 per night, it was a little steep considering I was not going to spend much time in the hotel room. It was pleasant just sitting there, people watching. I ordered a second cup of tea. short walk back to my hotel, had my long-awaited shower, and then spent an hour in the massage parlour, which was a decent way to end the afternoon. Although I was tempted to return to the Great Calm Pub in the evening, I decided to go back to the Shangri-La Hotel and dine at the nadam restaurant. Found a comfortable seat, read through the menu, the waiter came over, and I ordered a Chingis beer. Sorry, sir, he said. No alcohol today. took a few seconds to sink in as I tried to understand why not. It was a Thursday as opposed to Sunday, where some places have rules for that day of the week, usually for religious reasons. I'm talking about Sunday. The rule in Mongolia is that the first day of every month is non-alcohol day. This rule applies to Mother and Children Day as well, but by coincidence, they fell on the same day of the month. I enjoyed the food, however, with my glass of water. The restaurant was quite empty, except for myself and a couple of other foreign gentlemen, likely on business trips, eating alone. There was a plan B, however, in my hotel room or some beer in the room's fridge. I had to pack my suitcase anyway, and because of a 6am flight the next morning, I had arranged a wake-up call at 3am and gave myself 30 minutes to get ready and leave the hotel room by 330 I needed an early night for a long day ahead. Suffice to say, I drank two of the cans of beer while packing my bags. It was a flight I could not miss. So being overly cautious, as well as having the early morning call, I set my iPhone alarm clock for two wake-up calls shortly after. Reception, ordered a 3.30 a.m. taxi as well. As is usual with me, when I know I have to get up early for a flight, it somehow psychologically burns that into my brain cells I was up and awake before the alarms went off and the call from reception came in. I wasn't taking any chance with the Ulaanbaatar traffic either. However, at that morning, or that hour of the morning, the traffic congestion was non-existent. And within 45 minutes, we were at the airport. In fact, I was there far too early for the Miat, as Mongolian Airlines desk, uh, checking agents. My five-hour flight to Hong Kong was comfortable and uh, between periods of sleep had time to reflect on a wonderful few days in Mongolia. Even years after being there, I still think about it regularly. It's one of those experiences that just stays with you for the rest of your life. So everyone, if you want to go on a trip of a lifetime, have an experience that will stay with you forever, Mongolia could be it. Many thanks for joining me today. This is Malcolm Teasdale signing off. Before I do, please check out my website, malcolmjteasdale.com, for more information about my travels around the world. Okay, folks, talk to you later. Bye for now. Stay safe.